Good morning, church family. Carol and I have been members at Hexton Clear Creek for more than 30 years. We have come to know and live this, love this church and this community. I've been an elder for most of that 30 years. We have had times of uncertainty and struggles, but we have come through those times and are in a great place to plan for the future. I'm excited to see what the future will bring. I'm honored to serve with a group of men as elders who are unified in their desire to serve and to please God. We are unified and 100% behind our plan to be a church that reaches out to our community, especially to those who do not know Jesus. We are in a study regarding worship. We want each one of our members to use their talents and abilities to worship God in the best way possible. We ask each person to be a part of this study to understand what God wants us, each of us to be. Josh is a diligent Bible scholar and his lessons have been prepared carefully to help each of us know God better. Please consider these messages and the resources that will be available to help understand this process. Thank you for your time. All right, you guys ready? Grab your Bibles. We have a lot to cover this morning. Now, if you are new or perhaps you were not with us last week, we began a teaching series called Music and Worship and is looking at the leadership, the elders of this church's desire and plan for us to become what is called a both-and church, meaning we offer both a cappella praise, that's praising God with just our voices, as well as an instrumental service where we sing and have musical accompaniment. And over these four weeks, our goal is to articulate why. That was last Sunday. Today we're looking at what the Bible says. Next week we will look at how might this look. And then finally, how do we as a body work together in unity and love? And so that's where we're going, and that's sort of the why behind it. Now we have a few resources I want to make sure. Go ahead to two slides. Yeah, here we go. Few resources. First off, every Sunday this month we will be teaching on this topic, as I just mentioned, because we want to make sure as a family we walk through this together. We are not rushing this. We want to talk through it, ask questions, and be able to dialogue as a family. The second thing is we are offering on Sunday mornings, beginning today, a series of three teachings, video teachings, from a man named Rick Ashley. He's a preacher in Texas. They went through this same study about eh, 18 years ago, and so we are showing what he taught during that season as a church. If you missed it this morning, that's okay. We can send you the direct link, and you can watch it in the comfort of your own home, uh, because we want everyone to have all of the information and understanding behind what we're doing. Now, in addition to those teachings, we also have provided out in the lobby this morning stacks and stacks of these uh, file folders. Inside, there are two documents. One is the eldership's position paper on how do we study and interpret the Bible. Because how you study the Bible, we all know this, how you study the Bible determines what you get out of the Bible. And so, as a member of the church, they want you to understand how they meticulously go through Scripture to come to conclusions. The second document in there is the a cappella instrumental worship position paper which is going through a ton of what we'll be dealing with today. In fact, I'm going to do my best to summarize most of that document. I can't cover everything that's in it in our time, but I will do my best. So I'm going to ask you, pick one up on your way out, read it, and if you have questions, please meet with our elders. They want to meet with you. In fact, there's a room back here, A8, where elders are every Sunday just to receive you, to listen, to pray with you, to try and answer questions. 
If, they want, if you want to meet with them in your home or someplace during the week, they will do that as well. But grab this. It's a great resource. We hope it will be very helpful for you. And then finally, uh, we may push this date up, but currently we have for the 15th of March a one-night, 90-minute seminar on how to talk to your family about dot, dot, dot. In other words, how do you have great conversations that are on hard topics? And so we're going to talk about that because for some of you, that's the key challenge. It's not personal, it's family. And you want to answer questions well. What I would say to some of you this morning, if you are already being asked questions, that's fair. I would invite it if I were you. But my response, if I were in your shoes, which, by the way, I am in your shoes right now being asked those questions from extended family. What I would encourage you to say is, hey, I'm still learning what the leadership team and what the elders are specifically thinking about. Let me go through this, and then I'd be more than happy to dialogue with you. You can also pass along the position papers. This isn't private. It's for anyone who wants it. So grab an extra, pass it along if that is helpful. Okay? Now, with that said, today's topic is this big question. Go ahead and put this up. Does the Bible say instrumental praise is okay? Because if the Bible says no, then we won't go. That's the way this works, correct? The Bible is our final authority on faith and practice. So we must go to the Scriptures with an open mind, open heart, and listen to what Scripture says. That is where we're going to try to walk through today. I have about 20 minutes on my timer. We're going to go long, so bear with me because we don't want to miss some key things in here. Are you ready? One last thing before we dive in. I want to thank you for the response that so many of you have given from last week's teaching. This church continues to amaze me with its grace and kindness. We received all kinds of different feedback and comments. Not all of it was in agreement, but all of it was respectful, gracious, kind. And again, that doesn't surprise me at all, but it was so encouraging. Now, you need to understand, we are a diverse church. Some people are like, yay, let's go. And others are like, no, I don't want to. I don't feel comfortable with this. There's a problem with this. But in both categories, there has been a level of grace and thoughtfulness that is just genuinely overwhelming. And one of the things that I think is very interesting is the diverse response should not surprise us because we are a diverse church family. This is not one person Xeroxed a hundred times. In fact, a friend of mine who is relatively new to our church has not become a part of the church but has been coming uh, was here last Sunday. And I saw my friend midweek this week, and she said, hey, can I ask you a question about last week's sermon? I said, sure. She said, I I don't mean to be rude, but is this really that big of an issue to people? I thought she was joking, so I laughed. And if you've been in the church, you would understand as well, yeah, it's a big deal. Now, if you have not been a part of the church, or maybe you grew up in a different church background, it's easy to dismiss the legitimate concerns brothers and sisters have on this topic. So to my brothers and sisters who have no problem with what we're talking about today, I'm going to ask you especially to be gracious and thoughtful to the brothers and sisters who are working through this and processing it. This is a family. Families lean in when there are difficulties. They don't throw stones. And so I want to invite you to be thoughtful of your brothers and sisters. Now, One thing about her comment that was very eye-opening was just how many different perspectives are in the Church of Jesus Christ and in the Clear Creek Church of Christ in particular. In fact, one of the things I like to do, we're going to do this morning. Ready? Uh, Show of hands, here's what we're going to do. If you grew up primarily attending a Church of Christ, if the Church of Christ is your 
home church growing up? Can I just see hands? Raise them high. Hold them up. Don't put them down. Everyone look around, please. Okay? Now put those down. Okay? If the church of Christ is not the church that you grew up in, if you grew up in Baptist, Presbyterian, Catholic, Lutheran, Methodist, uh, etc., or no church background, would you raise your hand? Go ahead. Hold them up and look around, please. Okay? Now, you can put them down. What's my point? We're a diverse church. We will have diverse opinions. And the health of a Christian and a church is measured not when we all agree, but in how we work together when we disagree. And so over the next few minutes, I'm going to invite you to go with me deeply and quickly through Scripture because we want to look at what Scripture says. Last week, we looked at why. We looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and Acts chapter 15. If you missed those messages, I'm going to invite you to go back and listen to them. But here's the bottom line, the basic reason why. We want to bless everyone in our church, and we believe both and allows that. And we want to take away what we believe is an unnecessary barrier to those outside of our church. And this is based on repeated comments that we have received from our unchurched friends who have either visited or are unwilling to visit because of this. So those were the main two reasons why. But today, what does the Bible say? Ready? We're going to start Old Testament and go through the New. Grab your Bibles, 2 Chronicles chapter 5. If you want, take pictures of the screen that may help you as well. But I want to take you first through the Old and then the New. In 2 Chronicles chapter 5, we begin with a picture where the Israelites are bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the newly built temple for worship. The Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament was the physical representation of the presence of God among his people. And so they bring it in, and this is what we read in 2 Chronicles as they are bringing the Ark into the temple. Verse 12 says this, All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, He-Man, great name by the way, Jeduthun and their sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar. That's inside the temple. By the way, as Randy Davis helped us kind of get a flavor of this morning, I love that, my brother. They were dressed in fine linen and played cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were also accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. So at the inauguration, this worship service, there are instruments present. But it continues. Verse 13, notice this very interesting point. It says, The trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Interesting phrase. We'll look at that. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments. Notice this. The singers, put this up, the singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good, His love endures forever. Now, notice this. The singers, the act of singing is actually an act of praise. That's why when we sing to God, it is not simply a passive thing. But when you're singing, you are actively praising God with your voice. But notice the exact same praise is attributed not just to the singers, but to those who are playing instruments. In other words, the act of playing an instrument can be an act of praise and worship. And God is so pleased with what he sees and what he hears that we're told, then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud. Now, the cloud in the Old Testament was often symbolic of God's presence. So in the book of Exodus, when God liberates Israel from Egyptian bondage, he leads them through the wilderness at night by fire and by day using a cloud. So the assembly gathers, they celebrate God. He says, this is good. He enters into their place of worship and into the midst of their worship. 
Now, let's fast forward. Second Chronicles 29, continuing on, I want you to notice that in this passage, it is not simply allowed, but God actually commands instrumental praise. Notice what it says in verse 25 and 26. He stationed the Levites in the temple of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres in the way prescribed by David and Gad, the king's seer, and Nathan, the prophet. This was, notice this word, commanded by the Lord through his prophets. So the Levites stood ready with David's instruments and the priests with their trumpets. So in 2 Chronicles, by the way, we're only touching the tip. We're going to continue going here. But in 2 Chronicles, notice God commands instrumental praise. God approves of instrumental praise. And using instruments like singing is an act of worship before the Lord. You say, well, is that all the Old Testament says? Not in the slightest. Skip ahead now to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is the songbook of the early church, and it was the songs of praise in the nation of Israel. In fact, there are 25 different psalms that give instruction on how to worship or use the psalm, including instruments in the process. In fact, in Psalm 4, it says, with the singing of instruments. And Psalm 5 says, for flute accompaniment. Now, here's what some other psalms say on the issue of instruments in worship. Psalm 33, 1 through 3 says, Sing joyfully to the Lord. By the way, if we stopped right there, I think that would be a sermon in and of itself. That when we sing, we do so with great joy in our hearts, not because we have to, but because we want to. Uh, a gentleman who left our first service this morning said, Josh, you, I was with you the whole way through until you did not mention that today is Super Bowl Sunday. I said, okay, I'll say it in a second. But you know what's going to happen during the Super Bowl? There will be people who stand, who cheer, who clap, who sing fight songs. They are doing so joyfully because what they are experiencing is exciting to them. How much more so the people of God when gathered to celebrate our risen Savior. Psalm 33 says, Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise Him. So singing is a means of praise. Verse 2, praise the Lord also with the harp. So instruments is a means of praise. Make music to Him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. Psalm 92, 1-3 says this, It is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. How? To the music of the ten-stringed lyre and the melody of the harp. Let me take you to one more, although we could go to many more. Psalm 150 is the last psalm in the book of Psalms. And notice what it says here. Praise him with. Now, this is an interesting little word, with. It means that praise is happening, but something is going to be the means of praise. So he says, praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with the timbrel and dancing. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. If you have breath this morning, may you and I praise Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Now, I've read all these, and we could go through many, many more, but the reason I'm sharing this with you is for this reason. Next slide. In the Old Testament... God not only allowed but commanded instrumental praise. And number two, playing an instrument like singing was an act of worship. This is simply a taste for you to see in the Old Testament what God's posture, God's position was towards instruments in worship. 
Now, at this point, if you are a thinking person, and I know you are, you're thinking at least one of three different questions or perhaps arguments against this. Let me just try to articulate them and see if we can answer them. The first one is this. Instrumental praise, you may say, is part of the Old Testament law. God gave a law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Part of that included how they should worship, and within that is instruments. So, the argument goes... It is part of the Old Testament law. We are not a part of the Old Testament law, as Randy so brilliantly showed us this morning. We are under the law of Jesus Christ, the law of grace. So if it was a part of the law, it is not a part of the church. That would be true if instrumental praise only occurred once the law was given. But in Exodus chapter 15 and verse 20, you might want to write that down, Exodus 15, 20, we see that Israel worships the Lord with instruments before God gives the law to Moses. When God liberated the people from Egypt through the Red Sea, destroys Pharaoh and the Egyptian army, we are told that Miriam and others dance and sing before the Lord using instruments. In other words, instrumental praise occurred before the law was given, so it is not bound by the Old Testament law. The second argument or concern that comes up with this is, well, God didn't actually approve it. He just tolerated instrumental praise. Now, I need to say this. I have actually said this before. And then a dear friend made a very kind but clear statement. He said, Joshua, be very careful with saying that. You are saying something the Bible does not say. In fact, Josh, in the Old Testament, as we've just seen, It's not that he's just allowing it, but he is commanding it in certain instances. So then the third one that comes up is, yeah, but all this is in the Old Testament. And we are not an Old Testament group. We are a New Testament church. And I would tell you that is a great point. So now let's leave the Old Testament and move into the New Testament to see what Scripture says. Now this is where things get a little bit more difficult because the New Testament says virtually nothing about the use of of instruments, authorizing it, or prohibiting instruments, not allowing it. Jesus never addresses the issue directly. He never says, you must or you can't. doesn't do it. The only place that Jesus even sort of references instrumental praise is in a very familiar parable in Luke 15. How many of you are familiar with the story of the prodigal son? Anyone else in here know that story? If you don't, here's how it goes. There's a son who tells his daddy, I want your stuff, I just don't want you. Give me my inheritance. He gets his inheritance, leaves. He goes off, lives a debauched life, and when he hits rock bottom, he says, I need my daddy. He goes back home, says, I'll be a servant, just let me come home. His daddy says, you are not a servant, you are my son. He brings him into the family, throws a party for his boy. People are celebrating. And then there's another brother, remember? You've got the bad boy son, the prodigal son, and then you've got the good boy son, the one who never left, who was always there, etc. He, being out in the field, goes to the house. And while coming to the house, we read this passage from Jesus' words. He says, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field when this party's going on. When he came near the house where the party's going on, he heard music and dancing. Now, this word music is the word symphonos, and it literally means band. In other words, when Jesus Christ, whether figuratively or literally, when Jesus is describing what God does when a sinner is saved, God, whether figuratively 
or literally, is throwing a party in heaven and striking up the band. This is what Jesus is describing. Now, this does not command that we ought to do so on earth, but it neither says we shouldn't. What about the church? Would you be surprised to know that the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church, the first 35 years, roughly, of the first century church, says nothing about instrumental worship or acapella worship, for that matter, as a means of you must or you may not. In fact, the only place that there's even a hint that the early church was involved in or did this was in Acts chapter 2 in verse 46. You're familiar with it if you've been a part of the Clear Creek Church for long. It says of the early church that every day they, the Christians, continue to meet together in the temple courts. Now, what did we learn about the temple and worship in the Old Testament? It was instrumental. That continued through the first century until the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. So they were still participating in the Jewish rituals and worship in the temple. Now, that doesn't endorse or condemn it. That's all we know about it is my point. Well, what about the writings of the apostles, the letters? Well, they, not a one of them give any sort of clear we must or we may not have instrumental praise in our corporate assembly. It's just not discussed. It is not addressed. But this is the key point. Although Jesus does not address it, the early church does not address it, and the letters do not address it, the Bible does address it in the New Testament. When you go to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, a man named John, he was Jesus' best buddy, one of the apostles. He sees a vision of Jesus and of heaven, and the book of Revelation is what he sees in this heavenly scenery. By the way, Lord willing, we will take time this fall to walk through the book of Revelation and unpack a lot of what's in there. The book of Revelation, by the way, is a book of worship. It's to a people who feel oppressed, and it's to tell them that God is still on the throne, no matter what happens on earth. But in there, we see two different passages that I want you to see. The first one is in chapter 5. Revelation 5, 8 says this, And when he had taken it, and we'll talk about all of the its and they's and stuff later. The four living creatures and the 24 elders, this is all in heaven, fell down before the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus Christ. Each, notice this, had a harp. And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. Let me give you one more. This is Revelation 15, 2 and 3. It says, And I, John, saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast, the enemy, and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Now, next slide. In Revelation, God not only allows instrumental praise, God provides the instruments for praise. Now, if you, again, are a thoughtful person, and one of the things I love about this church is you think deeply. Please continue to think deeply. Side note, it does not honor God for us to simply enter with our emotions but leave our heads at the door. God calls us to worship him in spirit, Jesus says in John 4, in spirit but also in truth. So think deeply. And so a question you will ask or someone will ask you, and it's a great question. Here it is. 
Yes, but Revelation is symbolic. Isn't that true? The book of Revelation is full of symbols. Absolutely, absolutely. So let's talk briefly about apocalyptic literature and symbology. Apocalyptic literature, that's what we're reading here, uses earthly images, earthly symbols to describe something heavenly or something indescribable. But one of the rules of apocalyptic literature is that you use good earthly images to describe good heavenly things, and you use bad earthly images to describe bad cosmic things. So, for instance, good earthly things like gold, jewels, giant pearls big enough to carve gates out of, those are used as the images to describe heaven, good things for good things. Dragons and harlots are used to describe the devil and of corrupt, debauched culture. Bad things for bad things. So, whether literal or figurative, the important question every thinking person must ask is, yes, it's symbolic, but look at this. Would God use something he condemns as the symbol of something he approves? Would God use the image of a harp if he condemns it on earth as the symbol to describe what he loves and wants and is literally giving in heaven. It is not logical, is it, friend? And so one of the things we begin to see is in the Old Testament, God doesn't simply allow it. He endorses it. He commands it in some instances. And we see it at the end. In fact, let's put this up. If God approves of the instrumental praise in the Old Testament and he approves of it in the coming age in heaven, then... What makes us think God disapproves of it in between? I love it. Do it. You should. It's great. Go for it. In heaven, this is the imagery. This is how it's going to work. But right now, no, and I will condemn you to hell if you do it. I'm not laughing or joking. I'm being serious as I can be. This is a matter of consistency with the kind of God you and I believe that we serve. Is he a God that says one thing and one thing, but through his silence assumes another. So this is a picture. Now, are we done? Not in the least. Some of you are going to say, because you are thoughtful people, because you've studied this, you're going to say, yes, but Josh, the early church did not use instruments, did they? And the answer is no. From every available source, we do not have evidence that the early church, really up till at least the 6th century, and maybe all the way to the 10th century, did not use instruments in their corporate worship. So then the point is, well, why not? You know, if, if it's okay, why didn't they use it? And we all have speculation. Let me give you three. No one knows for sure, but let me give you three possible reasons why they chose not to use it. Number one, they were attempting to distinguish themselves from the corrupt, instrumental, debauched, and very sexualized worship of pagan temple worship. That is one option. Another option that scholars have offered is that they were being persecuted for much of that time in different pockets. And if you're being persecuted, you do not do things that call attention to yourself, such as loud noises, whether instrumental or singing. This is why to this day, if you go to places in China and other parts of the world, if you are a part of the church, you will not even sing when you gather because you don't want those around you to hear you be arrested and in many cases, disappeared or executed. So persecution is another possible reason. The third one is finances. It's a lot less expensive to sing than to have an instrument. Now, here's what I'm trying to tell you. There are a variety of reasons. We don't know the answer to it, 
But one of the things that we love about our restoration movement, part of the heritage of those who look to the Scriptures, is simply this. While history, church history, is helpful, it is not our final authority for what we do. Scripture is the authority for what we do. And what we see is that it is not condemned or commanded in Scripture. Now, I know some in here are saying, wait a minute, Josh, are you skipping the two big verses? How many of you know what two big verses I'm talking about? Anyone in here? If you say, Josh, what are the two big verses? I can spit them out like that. It's Ephesians 5, 19 and 20, and it's Colossians 3, 16. Why? Because this was one of the first arguments I ever had with a friend who was not a part of the church of Christ, and I went there. Now, if you ask me what passage talks about the atoning work of Jesus Christ, I might have to get a concordance. But these I know because they were so ingrained. You say, well, what are they? Let's read these together. These are the words of the Apostle Paul to churches in Colossae, a city there, and churches in Ephesus. Here's what he says. I'm going to read both of these out loud. And what I'm going to ask you to do is listen to them and try to listen to them as though this is the first time you've ever heard them. What do you hear? Instead of coming with pre-existing, this is what it's got to mean, what do we hear? So, let me read these both together. Here we go. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. Now, Ephesians 5, 19 and 20. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, question. What do those verses have to do specifically or specifically teach us about instrumental music in the corporate assembly? Answer, nothing. Those passages are not about the corporate assembly. The context, read the rest of the books. The context is Christian conduct and Christian living. In other words, it is addressing not one hour on Sunday morning, but every hour Sunday through Saturday. That is the heart of what he is talking about here. But if someone says, I just don't buy that, Josh, I think it really is about worship. Fair enough. Even if they are about the assembly, they still tell us nothing in regard to instruments being used in it. They tell us to sing in our hearts to God. That's it. They neither authorize nor condemn the use of instrumental music, but both sides, both sides, pro-instrument and pro-acapella, have used it to make their own cases. So, for instance, the pro-instrumentalists, for those who say, yes, let's do it. They will often read this and say, well, it says, sing the psalms. Well, wait a minute. The psalms command the use of instruments, so therefore this is commanding us to use instruments in worship. Yeah. No. Friend, you are stretching the text. It does not say that. And then others, the pro acapella, say, well, it says to sing, and to sing means to sing only, and that's all. Again, friend, with respect. That is not what the text says. It says sing. It does not say sing only. You are stretching the text. Both sides must humbly come before the text and say it neither authorizes nor condemns it within these passages. So we must look to the whole of Scripture for God's heart and God's will for his body of followers. It is a very dangerous thing for me to pull one passage out 
and build a theology ignoring the rest of the sacred texts. Now, there's also one little more agree- disagreement and argument that comes up. We don't have time to get into, but grab the notes that are in the folder out there. It'll go into it much more deeply. But I want you to notice this little word, psalms. That's the Greek word, solo. Everyone say, solo. Solo is translated in any Greek lexicon. It has a couple different translations. One is to sing. The other is to pluck or to play an instrument. What I want you to know is in the first century, the word solo was almost exclusively translated and understood to pluck or play an instrument. I did not say always. I want to be very clear to my pro-instrumental friends here. But most of the time, there are references. If you want to see who says that and where that information comes from, you're welcome to look at that document as well. But early first century, second century sources are the ones who give us that information. Here's my point. Some of you are going, my goodness, my head hurts. Friend, we've just scratched the surface. What I want you to see is the scope of Scripture. Commanded, approved, blessed. It's an act of worship in the old. Jesus, by the way, if, if we were to, if this were something God did not want in the New Testament, we would expect Jesus to address it. After all, he addresses other issues from the Old Testament. How often do we hear Jesus say, you have heard it said, referring to the Old Testament, and then he says, but I now tell you. If this were a salvation issue, if God had changed his mind between the Old Testament and what will be in the New Age... If he had changed his mind for now, we would expect there to be a clear command or something else taking the place of it in the New Testament. But we do not see any of that. So here's the bottom line. Put this up, please. Paul. Oh, Paul says nothing about the use or non-use of instruments. He says nothing about it. He doesn't address it. Now, one last thing that comes up in these conversations, and this is the one that I think maybe for you... If you're like me, this was the biggest one. And maybe not, but for me, this was a hard one. And I want to share with you as best I can a way to think about this. We want to be people of the book. Amen? I mean, that's our heart. At the bottom line, end of the day, we just want to honor the Lord. And we do that by honoring His Word. And one of the things that we have used historically for about 150 years is this argument called the argument of silence. And it basically says this, anything not specifically authorized in the Scriptures is forbidden. So if it's not in there, we can't do it. That's the way it goes. The problem is that we have not been consistent in our use of this. In fact, the reason we are divided is because we've been divided on this question, I believe. There are two main issues with the silence argument. Let me give you them both. The first one is we have not practiced it consistently. We have not practiced it consistently. If we may only do in worship or on Sunday morning what is specifically authorized in Scripture, then, friend, we are already blowing that one terribly. Let me give you a very short list of things that we've done wrong this morning if we have to follow silence. Bible school is not specifically authorized in Scripture. Located preachers, that'd be me, not authorized. Church buildings, not authorized. Kitchens in a church, not authorized. Supporting orphanages as a congregation, not authorized. Having a youth ministry or a children's ministry is not specifically authorized. Drinking from more than one cup in communion is not authorized. Jesus says when you drink the cup or taking the cup. So for us to be consistent, and I'm not making light of this, I'm taking this incredibly seriously. 
would mean that we must sell our building, meet in homes, that we get rid of staff, youth ministry, children's ministry, Bible classes. We no longer support orphanages as a congregation. And when you take communion, you share one cup. By the way, the key takeaway there is get there early so you drink first. Now, I know we laugh about this, but friends, churches have split over every one of these items on the board. This is serious. But we do not practice this consistently. The second issue, and I think this one is maybe even bigger than the first of consistency, is simply this. Where in Scripture is the silence argument specifically authorized? If the argument says we may only do what is specifically authorized, then where is the argument itself specifically authorized? We are told in Revelation to not add to the text, and that is specifically talking about the book of Revelation, but I agree we should probably not add to anything in Scripture. But there is nowhere where this argument is specifically authorized. Does it therefore mean we cannot use the argument because the argument says we can't use anything that's not authorized in Scripture. Do you see how it is self-defeating? Now, I'm not at all throwing stones, but I want us to think honestly about this and be thoughtful enough in the way that we address this issue. And what you end up having is you have brothers who say, well, because it's not authorized, we can do anything we want. Is that a good answer, church? No, absolutely not. If you said yes, I should have... No, no's the answer. By the way, Simply saying that if it's not authorized, we can do anything leads to some very weird and often bad practices. This is why we look to the whole of Scripture and common sense. We don't simply say, well, it's not authorized, so we can do anything. But also, because it's not authorized does not mean that we may not do anything. Again, this leads to us doing things inconsistently in the way we practice. And so it takes looking at the whole of Scripture and common sense to decide what is and is not appropriate. And what is so beautiful about the churches of Christ is that each congregation is led by qualified men as elders who must look at the debated matters and make the decisions, what is best for us? What I want you to see, you do not need to love one or love the other. That's not the issue here at all, at all. We have no interest, I have no interest in trying to convince you to to prefer a cappella or instrumental worship. What we simply want to do is address the Scriptures honestly and allow the Scriptures to address us honestly as we look at this topic. Now, last thing I'll say, because we've talked a lot about all the intricacies, and I'm afraid if we leave it here, many of us will maybe wrongly think that what's most important is the instrument or the voice. I want us to look one last time at the verses we read from Colossians and Ephesians. And I want you to see the focus is not the voice. The focus is not the instrument. I want you to see what the main thing that's at stake here today. He says this, Paul writing, says, Sing and make music from your heart. Singing to God with gratitude in your heart. The core issue, if we get anything right is that we must come to worship God from the core of our being. One of the things that Jesus got so frustrated with the Pharisees over is they were technically right, but their hearts were wrong. He calls them whitewashed tombs. This is not you. By the way, that is not a statement if you love instruments or you love a cappella. 
That is a statement that all of us must come before God and say, God, what I give you from the core of my being is my whole self. I want you to have me from the inside out. This is why in Jeremiah we're told that Jesus, that God would come and he would exchange our hard hearts for soft hearts because God wants our hearts. This is why David, when the prophet Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel and all the sons of Jesse are brought out, Samuel looks and he's like, oh man, this, this son, he's big, he's strong, he's going to be king, right? Or what about this one? He's, he's clever and he's strong, he should be king, right? And God says, Samuel, humans, people, you all, look at the externals. I am worried about the heart. What's at stake, friends, more than anything else? And if you don't hear anything else this morning, it's simply this. God desires your heart. And Roger, by the way, we are so glad that he got your heart today. That's exciting, buddy. So two final questions, and we're going to call it a morning in prayer. Here's the first question, number one. What if the only thing God hears this morning is our hearts? What if he doesn't hear the voice, doesn't hear the instrument? By the way, if you're like me and your voice is, eh, this is good news. What if he hears just the heart? And if he just hears the heart, second question, then what is God hearing from me right now? What is my offering to him? Does he have all of me? Am I holding on to some parts that I'm just unwilling to let go of? Is there secret sin in my life that I need to confess? Is there anger? Is there resentment? Is there bitterness? Am I hurt? Am I upset? Or maybe am I gloating? What does God see and what does he hear this morning? May God hear from each of us worthy praise from our hearts this morning. Let's stand and let's pray to him. As I said last week, if you feel comfortable, grab the hand of the person next to you. If you're related, great. If you're friends, great. Or fellas, if she doesn't have a ring on her finger and she looks cute, great. <laughs> Let's pray together. Holy Father, we give you praise from the core of our being. Lord, I am a sinful man with sinful lips. As Isaiah said, I need you to cleanse me. And we confess we need the cleansing power of Jesus in our lives. We need the Holy Spirit's presence to do what we ought and to not do the things that are so easy to do. Father, I pray that my heart and the hearts of these brothers and sisters would be turned towards you, inside out, flipped upside down, the contents of our lives poured out on the table like emptying a purse. I pray that you would have our heart this morning. And I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters who are excited about the decision to move into both and but I would also pray, Father, that they would treat the brothers and sisters who struggle with this with grace and patience. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are concerned or frustrated or feeling myriad different emotions. I pray that you will comfort them. But I also pray that they would be patient and graceful with those who are excited. May we demonstrate the presence of your fruit in our lives, Holy Spirit, by the way we live through these seasons. We love you, Jesus. It is to you we pray, and it's to you we sing this next song. Amen.